helping clients meet their financial goals and prepare for the future. Schroders actively and responsibly manages investments. The world is forever changing, and we understand the need to adapt and evolve in line with what matters most to our clients. Hello, my name's John Schaefer, and welcome to the CityWire Wealth Manager podcast. Today I spoke with Duncan McIntyre, who's the UK CEO of Lombardodia. We looked at how the private bank has fared during the COVID-19 pandemic, the worries of its ultra-wealthy client base, and how the firm is leveraging its tech platform. If you'd like to get the latest updates on our podcast, please hit the follow button on Spotify. How has the business fared during the, the, uh, the pandemic? Well, look, I mean, it's been, a, it's been an interesting year, if that's a diplomatic way of putting it. Uh, I mean, clearly the, the, the year actually for us has been good. We've just published our half one results, which really take in the whole of the pandemic period. And, you know, our assets were very resilient. We're up, uh, we're at about 290 billion Swiss francs of assets. We've had very strong net new money numbers. Uh, and our operating income for the first six months of 2020 was actually up 16% at 674 million Swiss francs. And I think that's really been driven by, you know, strong net new money flows, which I mentioned, and then, you know, a lot of client activity during the volatile months. So, you know, on, on a business level, it has been good. Um, and the clients are happy. Uh, they've stuck with our advice, which was to stay invested and, and not to capitulate. Uh, and that's proven to be a very good strategy. Um, but I think on a human level, there's clearly people uh, getting used to uh, this different way of being. And, uh, you know, clearly one of those is getting people back into the office as we get into the end of 2020 and beyond. Sure. I mean, would you be able to break down some of those figures for the UK business? Uh, no, we don't have any. We, we only ever publish anything at a, at a bank level. Yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe anecdotally, maybe not being specific about the figures, what have... Yep. the inflows being yep. like and what what's the AUM growth like on the UK side yeah so you know the, the UK business has had a had a had a strong year we've had both strong revenue numbers and we've had strong asset numbers uh, you know we're talking uh, um, very strong uh, top end of single digit asset growth numbers um, and revenue numbers north of uh, uh, into double digits so it's been a it's been a good year um, and you know I think that's a reflection of of the business model that we operate I mean I think clients have really come towards it and you know in this time of uncertainty there is an, an inherent flight to quality and I think that we've seen that you know, Lombard Odia as you know is is one of the highest capitalized banks in the world we are uh, we have a tier one capital ratio of 29 percent um, and uh, we are a double A minus rated bank by Fitch, which I think is the highest rating it's possible for a bank of our size to achieve. So uh, these are, are very important statistics when when clients are looking for uh, safe places to house their, their money in this uncertain time. Um, wanted to look at the concerns of your clients. You, you just mentioned perhaps that they were sticking in markets, but there were a lot of human level concerns I mean, what, what have they been and, and perhaps some of the, the concerns on the investment side as well yeah look i mean i think that the the client's behavior has you know i think like all of us it's been a very human reaction it hasn't been a uh, a, a big strategic reaction it's you know as one of the bankers characterized it to me when when they spoke to me they said it, it feels like five stages of grief from 
panic, worry, then into anger, and then an element of depression, and then into acceptance. So I think there's been a a big process that people have gone through, and I think we can all we can all relate to that in our in our own lives. Um, I think that we've also seen um, clients having a lot more time. So one of the things that we've been able to take advantage of is really having a lot of time to talk to clients. We've been communicating. A lot. We have a a small but very wealthy client base, and that's enabled us to spend time with them. So conversations that we may have only got ten minutes before, we're now we we were getting an hour in the height of the uh, lockdown. So that's been good. It's been a good chance for us to talk through worries beyond beyond just the financial worry. Has that put added pressure on you then, uh, having to have more time with your clients then? Well, I mean, you know, the best bit of this job is time with clients, if, I, if I'm really frank. So I think that that, uh, that has not put pressure on us. But I think it's been, it's been interesting to be part of that broader conversation with clients about how they cope with really totally unprecedented elements. And I think the other thing I've seen come out of it is quite a lot of conversations about um, wealth transfer. You know, I think clients have really thought about, you know, uh, their own mortality, uh, the the generation planning that they need to put in place, and the time to do it. And I think as families have been together, it's been an extraordinary time to have those conversations where they maybe haven't had them so openly in the past. So we've spent a lot of time on the uh, wealth planning side um, looking at how we can look at that uh, that succession issues. And, and uh, to be crude, has there been a, a sort of rush to people putting in wealth planning measures, sort of f- feeling perhaps a greater risk with with the disease being around? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think it was it was a it was a it was a morbid question about their their own life. I think it was more about the fact that there was time together to discuss it. And I think that you know uh, intergenerational transfer is a, is a critically important thing to be able to do and have that chance to discuss wealth. I mean, we have one example where uh, you know we were on a client call and the and the client asked the banker whether you know their their child could join in that conversation and that that's a very important part of seeing that transfer taking place where 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 the next generation are being brought into the conversation and 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 that can only be a good thing in terms of in terms of planning and and structuring of wealth and how about some of the clients that are, are business owners how have they interacted with you has it meant that they've had to perhaps withdraw some funds prematurely um, we have had, I mean, there's, there's certainly, I mean, it, it, yeah, as you know, it's completely industry dependent. So some industries have been doing extraordinarily well, but if you're in the hospitality sector and others, it's been, it's been tough. And we have had some examples of clients wanting to either leverage their portfolios or to withdraw cash, but it's been a, it's been a very, very limited uh, amount. You know, I think that, that the good advice of any private banker is don't invest what you can't afford to invest. Um, and and so you know we have seen very very little withdrawals, um, and indeed we've seen some clients speculating to buy businesses externally uh, based on um, some opportunities that have arisen during this period. I think that that moves on to what have been the investment trends. Um, you say buying businesses has there been more movement in private equity, for example? Yeah, look, it's a good question. So, um, I think that that. that you know, during the crisis, we were we were very clear that uh, our baseline scenario was going to be a deep contraction in H1, followed by really a kind of non-linear recovery, depending on the sector. And our black scenario was that we'd have a sort of economic shutdown that extends beyond 2020. Um, you know, obviously, we've seen scenario one, our base scenario, really pan out, and we've seen 
a, a, a good recovery. And I think, as you say, uh, as we said, that the clients that have stuck with our core advice have, have done well. Uh, I mean, the, the four priorities that we really identified was that we wanted the portfolios to remain liquid um, so we could be agile within them. Uh, we wanted uh, to protect, uh, particularly against anticipated drops in, say, the oil price. We wanted to try and shield some of the downside by using some protection strategies. Um, and, uh, um, and we really wanted to allow the portfolios to, to benefit from the recovery that we saw coming in our, in our base scenario. I mean, I think, I think where we are today, as of today, I think what we see is that, you know, we're coming out, we're coming out of the worst of this, uh, COVID crisis. But I also think that the best of the recovery is also behind us. So we are in, in an interesting next phase as we, as we go into this. Um, and so I think as we as we look forward now, um, I suppose our our strategic asset allocation is really is really telling us three things. Uh, I think the first one is that we really do see China as a standalone allocation, uh, and I think that's quite a strong statement that we've made around really treating China as a uh, as a real economic powerhouse and not uh, putting it into his, its historic bucket of uh, emerging markets. We've also um, seen a lot of work going on around uh, thematic value. So what I mean by that, we've seen demographic changes, climate changes, digitalization changes. So we've been playing very strongly into those themes. Um, and then the last one, as you mentioned, is we've been really looking to broaden uh, the investment horizon. So that includes uh, private equity, but it also includes gold. Uh, and we've been, we've been big holds of gold uh, for a long period now, um, and uh, and we're still holding uh, about three percent of gold in our balance portfolios. We did reduce it from its height, but we we are we have been using it as a diversifier. You mentioned um, the importance of liquidity in the portfolio, but uh, as as I understand it, you're predominantly focused on ultra high net worth clients or clients at the upper end of the high net worth spectrum. So so why is liquidity so important for those clients? I, it, 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 it wasn't, it is the truth. I mean, I think that we see uh, our clients are able by the scale of their wealth to, to invest in uh, illiquid assets, private assets. And, and that's something we have been encouraging and using. As you know, we have a strong proprietary private equity capability. I think we meant in the liquid section, we just wanted some agility. This was more about nimbleness during the crisis. Uh, now we'd revert to a more, a more balanced strategy. And you mentioned the um, the prominence of thematic investing, and, and what, how are you defining a theme from your perspective? And how <laughs> how how are you in, how are you investing? Are you going via external asset managers? Are you doing it in house? We, we, we are primarily doing it in house, um, and you know we have seen some. So I'll give you some examples of uh, ways that we've been we've been doing this. Uh, we've been. Um, I mean, one is we, we have a climate transition fund, which we actually launched during the, um, the pandemic, which is about uh, those businesses that are transitioning uh, in uh, um, this new sustainability world. Uh, we've also launched a world brands fund, which is looking at uh, the top global brands. Uh, and then we have our longstanding golden age um, theme, which is looking at um, the silver generation and how the demographics is giving rise to opportunities. So those are the kind of themes that we're seeing strongly being replicated in our portfolios. 
moving on to what plans you have over over the coming year, what, what, what's coming up? Uh, look, I mean, I think that that we are we are continuing to invest very strongly in our um, technology platform. Um, as you know, we have a, a very strong technological capability, and I think that's been uh, that's been shown to be so critical during this period. Um, so that is something that we are going to continue focusing on. Um, the other thing that that has changed in the last year is that we've now created what we call a global UK business which is bringing together the UK teams in London, Geneva and Zurich into one uh, regional business. Uh, and that's really enabling us to focus much more uh, in a much more laser focused way on uh, our commitment to the UK market. And what we mean by the UK market is the landmass of the United Kingdom and the crown dependencies and the overseas territories, as well as the trust businesses in Zurich and Geneva. So uh, there's been a, a real focus on, on bringing that together. And I think we will, cons- we will continue to see that develop um, in the uh, years ahead. Uh, uh, and I think that the, the UK is for us a, a key driver of uh, potential opportunity. And, and so that strategic intent is, is very clearly there. Drilling down on the, on the tech platform. So this is a, a platform that you're both using yourself and selling to smaller private banks and family offices, as I understand it. And, and what's been the reception over the past couple of months? Have you still been able to sell it? Look, I think that the technology, I think, has never been more important. I think owning your own proprietary technology platform during this process has been an unbelievably strong place to be. Um, you know, Lombard Audio has been investing now for 25 years in building its own technology platform. So, as you may be aware, we have a single platform across all of our offices globally. Um, so, that means that you can have a banker in London who's booking assets in Geneva or in Zurich or in Luxembourg or in Singapore operating for a single portal, which has been a hugely advantageous position for clients to be in and also for them to have really deep analysis capabilities on their, on their portfolios down to attribution analysis on individual stock contributions in the portfolio. So, that's really enriched the conversations. Um, in terms of the use of the technology platform uh, for others, yes, we have a very successful external asset manager business uh, where these are smaller asset managers or family offices that are using our platform um, and, uh, and that provides them with effectively a bank in a box. And that has been a, a very successful strategy and is still, uh, still growing. So, so a long answer to your question yes, is yes, we've had no slowdown in that demand. And would you be able to reveal um, any of the clients? Uh, no, um, I, I mean I, I think that I would let them reveal if they're using our platform. But um, you know, it 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 is uh, it is a platform that we are extremely proud of, and we're we're going to be investing heavily in it over over the years ahead. So uh, it, it will continue to be. And yeah. sorry, how much revenue is it generating um, by selling that platform? Uh, well, uh, let's put it like this: it it, it is not a cost center. Uh, and I think that's very important because I think that that so often if you've got outsourced technology arrangements, they are clearly a draw on your uh, business success. Whereas for us, this is something that is contributing to the bottom line, but also enabling us to reinvest the the proceeds that we might make into developing the platform further. And that's exactly what we're doing. I, I think that you know, you you would not assume that Lombard Aviate uh, from the cover is 
in fact, a technology business under the surface. And I think that's a, that's a very important part of our offering. And, you know, I think it was very far-sighted of the partners to be, to be doing that 25 years ago. And we, we're seeing that now with a lot of other banks outsourcing their te- technology rather than owning it. Lombardo Odia is obviously a predominantly Swiss brand. And how have you been raising its profile in the UK um, and other jurisdictions that perhaps it's not as popular in? Yeah, it's it, 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 it's interesting. I mean, the Lombardia is an international brand. I mean, you know, we attract internationally minded clients from around the world. We have offices in twenty three countries now, um, and and our business is almost exactly divided in a third, a third, a third between our our Swiss business, um, our, our European business, and our Asian business. So it is a it is a pretty well diversified business. Um, and uh, we are seeing those clients who are looking for international wealth solutions, particularly uh, um, families who are multi-jurisdictional, who are who are finding us as being a very good partner to be part of. Uh, I mean, I think that the other thing that makes us interesting, and our positioning is very clear on this, is that that um, there is an element of Moses strategy here whereby we can go straight through the middle because we're not trying to be a universal bank. We are trying to offer fantastic investment management services. And so that means that we can work with um, uh, multiple partners, uh, be it trust companies or lawyers or accountants or other partners, and we're not necessarily looking to hold a central relationship because our job is is to uh, provide investment management services. And one of the things that I think we're seeing at the upper end of the wealth spectrum now is a very clear disaggregation strategy. So what I mean by that is that there is a realization that for uh, the wealthiest clients, they can afford to have true specialists uh, rather than going to a bank that's trying to offer everything in one place. Um, And so we're happy to offer really good investment management services supported by a great technology platform. And that, that combination works extremely well for us. So what's your specialism? Investment management. Okay. It's probably quite broad, though. But, well, but, but, but you say that. I mean, I think what you're seeing is that a lot of, uh, a lot of universal banks are providing everything from mortgages through to uh, uh, credit card solutions. We are just focused on the provision of portfolio management for uh, high and ultra-high net worth individuals. But looking on the other side of that, having that integrated solution that some of the other banks may offer, is that not more advantageous on things like tax, perhaps, you know, being able to lend against assets, etc.? Look, I think there's. I think the great thing about this this wealth market is there's a place for everyone, uh, and I'm not sound, meaning to sound horribly diplomatic, but I think that is the truth. Um, but I think that we are able to provide Lombard lending, and we do extensively across our client portfolios. Uh, and, you know, as you know, we have an extremely strong balance sheet, so we're very happy to do that. And I think that Lombard lending is a, is a good positioning, but we're not about to start offering retail mortgages uh, in the United Kingdom. It's just not the business that we're in. And, and actually, I think clients are better served in that retail mortgage space by others. You mentioned London and the UK earlier, and I guess the, the attractiveness of it. Why do you think it's still a destination for the ultra-wealthy, considering Brexit, etc.? Um, perhaps there are other jurisdictions, perhaps in Asia, that, that might be more attractive to the ultra-wealthy. Why is London still key? <laughs> I just want to point out, you mentioned Brexit first and not me. Yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> very, very clear. Um, uh, uh, look, I, I think that... <laughs> 
I'm not sure that Brexit will change London as a as a location. I mean, I think that what makes London so interesting is its sheer diversity and scale. I mean, it is a true international global city. And I think we see that quite a lot. It was interesting. I've uh, just been speaking to a client from a, uh, a major European country who's decided to relocate here. And I think the, the, the point that they're making is that they can see that they can have a a, uh, a very international existence in London. Uh, they have lots of diversity. They have the arts. They have the rule of law. They have the underlying security that exists here. So I think there is a very strong case for London as a global financial centre, and, and we absolutely think that is going to be the case in the in the years ahead. So we remain confident about about London, um, and uh, you know, I, I, and I don't think we'll be missed placed in that. I think it will attract global wealth uh, forever. And, um, you know, certainly uh, we've seen no slowdown in people wanting to relocate to the United Kingdom. There's been quite a lot of negativity towards the ultra wealthy of late. I mean, some might characterise it as billionaire bashing, etc. You've been having more in-depth conversations with your clients. Has that kind of topic come up, um, that those kind of themes come to the fore than perhaps when they wouldn't have before? I haven't actually heard it from clients, if I'm honest. I don't think that's a subject that's come up that much. I mean, I think that, that you know, there is absolutely no doubt that the wealthy play a very, very important role in, uh, in, the, in the economy of the UK. Uh, and I think we do need to ensure that we don't lose that uh, as we start thinking about the agenda from here. Um, and you know, I think that that London has always been a a natural home for the wealthy, as I mentioned before, and I, and I hope that that is in the mind of legislators uh, in the future. Um, and you know, clearly, our resident on domicile rules are extremely attractive, um, and you know, we hope those will remain so as 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 the UK finds its new place in the in the world order post um, our exit from the European Union in economic terms at the end of this year. In terms of boosting client numbers in, a, in AUM, where have you seen, um, from which jurisdictions have you seen sort of the most inflows? Uh, actually, we've seen it in, in, from, from us here in, in the UK, we've seen it mainly from our UK domestic business, actually, an area that we've really grown very strongly. And, uh, and that is good. We're seeing you know, business sales, which is what a lot of our clients who realize substantial sums of money make their money from. Um, and, and we've seen that to be one of our biggest sources. We also have a, a dedicated uh, a Middle East and Russian team in the UK, as well as a, a team covering francophone clients in the UK. So, uh, but the UK domestic business has been has been a, a, a big success in in the last in the last few years, as we we've, we've really seen people who are looking for a much more international view of the world coming to uh, a bank like Lombardier. Well, Duncan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, John, thanks very much indeed. Really appreciate it. Schroeder's is built on 200 years of experience and expertise. We partner with our clients, constructing innovative products and solutions across private assets and alternatives, solutions, mutual funds, institutional and wealth management. By combining our commitment to active management and focus on sustainability, our strategic capabilities are designed to deliver positive outcomes. 
With over 5,000 talented staff across 35 locations, we are able to stay close to our clients and understand their needs.